you ever had a loose thread on a shirt or a sweater and you began to tug at that thread and if you're not careful, things begin to quickly unravel. You know you've pulled the wrong thread. Well, there is a thread, a theme that runs through God's Word. And if you remove that thread from God's Word, you've removed the very heart of Christianity. We need to understand what that thread is, that what I'm calling the thread of redemption. And we see this clearly in Joshua chapter 2. So turn there with me. Joshua chapter 2. So we continue our study through this Old Testament book. Joshua chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Good to see you. I was a little worried about having someone to preach to today. It's spring break week, so we have a lot of families out of town on vacation. That's great. We want our families to do that. But also, we have two mission teams out. We have a team in Texas and a team in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, add to that, uh, the weather was plummeting yesterday and some uh, rain, precipitation was coming in. Add to that, time changed Sunday. I was thinking, are we going to have anyone here to preach to? So I'm, I'm very encouraged by the attendance. First service as well. It's been a great group this morning. Hey, by the way, how many of you think you're in the 930 service right now? Just raise your... Anybody? All right. Okay. Okay, good deal. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to, come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, and I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Let's pray together this morning. Father, you are great and glorious, and it is a privilege, Lord, to gather together and to fix our mind's attention and heart's affection upon you. And Lord, we come to this moment of Bible study expectantly. Lord, we are expecting you to speak to us. We are expecting you to work in our lives. We are expecting you to change us. And so, Lord, would you do that by your Spirit, working in our midst, as your Word goes forth, would you move with power? May the name of Jesus be exalted in this place, for it's all about Him. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we studied the book of Joshua, we've seen that after Moses died, the Lord had Joshua in place to lead the people of Israel. And he told Joshua, I want you to lead my people across the Jordan River into the promised land to possess the land that I am giving you. And so after Joshua received his marching orders, we saw last week he gave the people, uh, the fighting men, their marching orders. And the entire nation, he says, hey, three days, get ready, because we're about to rise up and cross the Jordan River and take the promised land. But we see at the beginning of chapter 2 that Joshua made some other wise preparations. Because look what it says there in verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, now look at this next phrase, especially Jericho. Go view the land, especially Jericho. Why did Joshua want these men to focus specifically on Jericho? Well, in the land of Canaan, we understand that there were city-states that that really made up the land of Canaan. And each city-state was ruled by a king, and Jericho was one of these city-states, one of the mightiest city-states in that area. And it was right across the Jordan from where the Israelites were crossing. So if they were going to take the promised land, they had to deal with Jericho. David Jackman writes, Joshua is aware that across the Jordan, the Canaanite city of Jericho stands, walled and defended, like a sentinel to bar Israel's progress into the land. They simply would not be able to take the promised land if they did not deal with the mighty city of Jericho first. So Joshua says, go into the land, spy it out, bring back some information so we can uh, build a battle plan that is wise, and especially focus on Jericho. And when the spies enter the city of Jericho, we are immediately introduced to a, a new character in this book. Her name is Rahab, and she takes uh, center stage in this chapter, and she's mentioned later on in the book of Joshua as well, and she's even mentioned in the New Testament. And so Rahab is a major biblical character, and we have much to learn from Rahab in this passage. And so I want to give you three truths about Rahab. Three truths about Rahab that will help us to understand this theme, this thread that that God has woven throughout his word. Three truths about Rahab. Number one, Rahab was a broken woman. Rahab was a broken woman. It says there in verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So, immediately when we're introduced to Rahab, her immoral lifestyle is front and center. We see that she is called a prostitute, an immoral woman. Now, some scholars have tried to take the edge off of this by saying that word translated prostitute in the Hebrew could be translated innkeeper. So it could mean that she kept a place for lodging travelers. She was simply an innkeeper. But the New Testament uh, takes away all ambiguity because when Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, she is called a harlot, New American Standard, and a prostitute in the English Standard Version. And that is a translation of a Greek word that can mean nothing else. So the New Testament is clear. Rahab was a harlot. 
Rahab was a prostitute. She lived an immoral lifestyle. Some have even suggested she was a cult prostitute. She, she served immorally pagan gods there in that city. We don't know, but we do know she lived a, an immoral lifestyle. You might say it like this. Rahab was far from God. Now, as we stand back and look across history and look at Rahab's life, we dare not look down our noses at her and say, what an immoral woman. Because we should all be able to identify with Rahab's brokenness. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's writing the church in Ephesus. He's reminding the Christians in that city what their life was like before they met Jesus. And he says there in Ephesians 2 that at one time they were far from God. And Paul wrote in verse 12, That at that time, before they were saved, they had no hope and were without God in the world. Which, by the way, describes all of us in this room. Before you were saved, you were lost. You were lost. You were far from God. You were without hope and without God in this world. And so when we look at Rahab, we can identify, can't we? Because there's some immorality in all of our lives that needs salvation. And so we look at Rahab's life and we identify with her. And we remind ourselves we've all been engaged in the wrong things at some point in our life. We've all experienced the brokenness and the hopelessness that sin brings. So why is Rahab a major character in the Bible? Because we're going to see her life is transformed. Her life is changed. Now listen... uh, The writer of Joshua could have left this story out and still told the story of the conquest of Canaan. Why is Rahab front and center? Why is she mentioned later? Why is she in the New Testament? Because Rahab demonstrates, listen, there is hope for anyone and everyone. You may be here this morning and you think you are beyond the grace of God. You think you've gone too far. You think your life is too broken. You think your life is too ruined. There's no way that God could love you and intersect your life and change you. And Rahab tells us differently, doesn't she? Rahab was a broken woman. She was far from God and yet she was changed. And any sinner and every sinner can be changed by God by embracing His Son, Jesus Christ. And Rahab reminds us of that truth. There is no one in this room that is beyond the amazing grace of God. And so, Rahab was a broken woman. But there's a second thing I want you to see about Rahab in this passage. Rahab was a woman of faith. We see her transformation right here in chapter 2. As we read earlier, word gets out that there are some unusual or unfamiliar men in the city of Jericho, and people rightly assume that they are spies. So they go and tell the king, and the king comes to Rahab's house, and they say, hey, Rahab, where are these men that you are hiding? And Rahab tells a lie. Says, they're not here, they've gone out of the city gate, they're heading back towards the Jordan. If you go now, you can catch them. After they leave to go chase these these spies down, she goes up to the roof where they're hidden, they're under some flax, and she has a conversation uh, with them. 
And in this conversation that ensues with the Hebrew spies, we see that Rahab believed in the one true God. And I believe that Rahab's faith is the major theme of this chapter. Now, Hebrew writers often used a literary device called chiasm. And it was a way to structure the text to emphasize a major point. So let me show you how the writer of Joshua used a chiastic structure to make a point. You look at it there on the screen. They would write in such a way that there were parallels at the beginning and end of the text with a central theme or central idea. So for example, you notice the chapter starts with the commission of Joshua. The, the chapter ends with the spies returning to Joshua. And so you might say that the beginning and end of the chapter relate to each other. That's why the letter A is up there. They, they go together. And then the, the next part of chapter 2 speaks of the arrival of the spies in Jericho, uh, the protection of the spies there in Jericho by Rahab. And then later on in the chapter, verses 15 through 21, there's the escape of the spies and their promise to protect Rahab. So those two sections are similar. They go together. That's why the letter B is there. They parallel one another. But right in the middle, there is a section that we're calling section C that is Rahab's confession of faith. And by the text being structured like this, the, the idea is this. This is what the chapter's all about. It's about her faith. Now, now some people read this chapter and they want to embark upon a discussion about ethics. Lying and, and wartime deceit and espionage and those sorts of questions. And certainly those are interesting ethical discussions to have. But if you read this chapter and all you have are some ethical discussions, you're missing the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is found there, starting in verse 8. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, before you when you came out of Egypt and when you, what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, the Sihon and Og, whom you have devoted to destruction." And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, look at this, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so here's this pagan prostitute making this marvelous confession of faith in the one true God. And based upon the structure, that's what the writer of Joshua wants us to see. This is what this chapter is all about. You might say it like this, Rahab's faith is the main point of the chapter. Now, I want you to see how this faith comes to be in her life and and what it means for her life. I want you to see that, first of all, she heard. To believe, Rahab had to hear. To believe in God, she had to hear about God. And and did you notice that emphasis there in verse 9? I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard. We heard about the Exodus. We heard about how God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery. We heard how God gave his people victory over other armies. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. So her faith 
was based upon hearing. She had to hear about the one true God to believe in the one true God. And word had spread to Jericho. She heard about the Lord and she believed in the Lord. And hearing always precedes faith. Over in Romans 10, the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The only reason you place your faith in Christ is because you heard about Christ. You have to hear first. And, and she heard about the one true God. Now this is interesting. Over in Exodus chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Lord tells his people, hey, news about your God is going to spread and all of the nations around this area are going to be terrified of you. So what God prophesied would happen is what happened. Because Rahab says, we've heard and we trembled and we were afraid. And I know that the Lord God, he is God. So she heard and then she confessed her faith. There in verse 11, the Lord your God. And she uses there the word Lord. She uses the covenant name of God. Sometimes pronounced Yahweh. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you're seeing the designation for God's divine name. So she uses the covenant name. I know the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above, on the earth beneath. He is God. This is a confession, a profession, a statement of faith. She confessed her faith. Warren Wiersbe says Rahab's knowledge of the true God was meager, but she acted on what she knew and the Lord saved her. She confessed her faith. And when you and I were saved, we confessed our faith. Look what it says over in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, I want to show you this. Romans 10 verse 8. The Bible says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Pretty clear, isn't it? So Rahab's confession of faith in the one true God, the God of Israel, was a reflection of the belief in her heart. She heard about God. She believed in God. Her her knowledge was meager, but she acted on what she knew. She confessed her faith and was saved. But then, after she heard, after she confessed, she began to act in accordance with her faith. We see how her life was changed. Look back with me in Joshua 2, verse 12. Now then, she says to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window For her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. So in effect, Rahab is making plans and giving instructions to save these spies' lives. 
what she's doing. In other words, she is, listen to this, aligning herself with these spies, thus aligning herself with their God. She's demonstrating here by her her obedience to the Lord. She's demonstrating that her life had really been changed. She's demonstrating that her faith was the real deal. Her faith was genuine. She began to act in accordance with her faith. Now, the Bible teaches that if someone is truly saved, there will be a change in their life. No change, listen, no Jesus. Because if someone embraces Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit enters their life and begins a transformation process and begins to line their life up with their profession of faith. In other words, their life begins to demonstrate that their faith was the real deal. We're not saved by performing good works. None of us are good enough to save ourselves. We're saved by God's grace. We're saved by receiving His salvation as a free gift. But after we're saved, good works begin to show up in our life to demonstrate that our faith was real. And Rahab is used to make this very point in the New Testament. Turn to James with me. James chapter 2. The New Testament. Verse 21, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He's not saying that Abraham was saved by his works or saved by his actions. He's saying that his actions demonstrated he really was saved. Well, how do you know that? Well, look what he says next. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. So his salvation happened when he believed God. Then he did what God told him to do. He, he, he exemplified good works, showing that his faith was real. He says there, he was called a friend of God. Then in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, if their faith is not accompanied by a changed life, their faith was not real. In the same way, watch this, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. James is making the point, hey, her faith was real. Her faith was alive because she acted on her faith. She aligned her life with the God of Israel. Good works came from her life, demonstrating that her faith was genuine. And this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Because there are a lot of people walking around that have their assurance of salvation based upon some past religious experience. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I had a, an emotional night at youth camp. Or uh, some, I was at some children's event, maybe vacation Bible school, and, and ten of us walked forward together. And I remember, you know, having tears in my eyes. So that's why I'm saved, because of some past event. And yet, if you look at your life, you say, well, there's really no evidence that I'm a Christian. There's really no Jesus there, but that past event happened, so I must be saved, right? Adrian Rogers said, if you want to know if a person's alive, 
you don't look at their birth certificate, you look at their vital signs. And, and when I was growing up in church, if someone struggled with assurance of salvation, you go to the youth pastor or the pastor and say, hey, I'm, I don't know if I'm really saved. And, and we would, they'd say to us, well, tell me about your birth certificate. Tell me about the experience you had. Instead of saying, are there any vital signs? Are there any good works present to demonstrate your faith was real? Is there any Jesus in your life? Do you love him? Do you follow him? Do you serve him? Do you obey him? Do you want to make much of him? Is your life centered on him? If, listen, if there's no Jesus, your faith wasn't real. And so Rahab demonstrates, hey, her profession of faith was real because her life instantly changed and good works began to emanate from her life. And she is used to make that point in the New Testament. I like what Jackman writes. Rahab has no other explanation for the astonishing event of the Exodus and all that flowed from it, even though she seems a most unlikely candidate to come to faith in Israel's God and appears to stand entirely alone among her fellow citizens in Jericho. Listen, the sheer historical force of what God has done and what, will, what he will, do, will, will yet do generates within her the faith that is prepared to risk her life in order to save it in the lives of her family. She's prepared to cut herself off from her background, to risk being charged as a traitor, and to do everything she can to help the spies because of her new faith allegiance to the only true and living God. All her future, listen, all her future now depends on this God. So she casts herself upon his mercy and on the faithfulness of his representatives. Her life was genuine. Her faith was genuine because it showed up in her transformation, her alignment with the Lord, the, the good works that came from her life. And so, works don't save you, but save people produce good works. Is that clear enough? Works don't save you. Faith in Christ through His grace, that's what saves you. But if you're truly saved, it'll show up in good works. And so we've seen here that Rahab was far from God. She was a broken woman, and we can identify with that, can't we? And then we see this, this wonderful central theme of the passage that Rahab professed faith in the living God. She was saved. But third and last, I want you to see that Rahab points us to Jesus. Rahab points us to Jesus. Now, if you read chapter 2 carefully, you'll find no mention of the name of Jesus. So how does Rahab point us to Jesus? Well, before I answer that question, I'm going to tell you about a pastor named W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas for 44 years. He was a great man of God, a great preacher of the Word of God, an expository preacher. The Lord used him to, to just do a great work in Dallas and beyond. And on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1961, W.A. Criswell started to preach at 7 o'clock at night and preached all the way to midnight. So the next time you want to complain about long-winded preaching, just realize I could go longer. He preached all night long. And the reason he preached for four hours 
is because his text was the entire Bible. He started in Genesis and went all the way to Revelation. And the point of this sermon was to show how the biblical theme of atonement is is woven throughout the entire book. As a matter of fact, the sermon was titled, The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. And he, he used the sermon to weave the stories of the Bible into one single story of God's redemption through Christ. His point is this in the sermon, that the Bible is bound together by blood. It's bound together by blood. He even goes on to say in the sermon, So the story of atonement and sacrifice begins and unfolds throughout the word of God until finally in glory we shall see great throngs of the saints who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Criswell makes the the case that there is this theme of blood that is woven throughout the entire word of God. In other words, if you take away the blood, you take away the central theme of the Bible. If you take away the blood, you take away the heart of Christianity. You say, well, wait, how is this this picture of blood atonement woven throughout the Bible? Well, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they all of a sudden felt their guilt and shame having been fallen from God. And they're naked and they know it. And so God kills some animals And the skin of those animals is used to cover their nakedness and their shame. So early on in the Garden of Eden, after the fall, we see people covered because of the shed blood of of another. As you continue to read your Bible, you see this theme come up again and again and again. You come across the story of Abraham and Isaac. He is commanded by God, Abraham's commanded by God to kill Isaac, and he takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, and he's bewildered and perplexed by this. Why would, why would God have him kill his son, who's the son of promise, the son that God would build a great nation through? He doesn't understand, but he obeys God, and he, he, he lays Isaac on the altar and lifts his knife, and right before the knife is plunged into Isaac, the Lord says, Stop! Abraham! I just wanted to know if you'd obey me. This was a test. But look, over there in that thicket, there's a ram caught by his horns. You can take that ram and put it on the altar, and that ram will take the place of your son. Isaac is spared from death because of the shed blood of the ram. Think about the night of Passover, when God was going to deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery. The Lord said, as the tenth plague, I'm going to come through the land and kill the firstborn of the land. But for my people, I'll tell you this. If you will kill a Passover lamb, kill a lamb, take its blood with hyssop and and put it over your doorpost. When I come in judgment to kill the firstborn in all of the land, if I see the blood, I will pass over your home in judgment and the firstborn will be saved. Salvation through the shed blood of a lamb. And we see this theme all throughout God's Word. Think about the sacrificial system that God put in place for Israel. It's all about shedding blood. So the people would understand, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And Criswell rightly makes the case that this theme of blood atonement goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The scarlet thread of redemption. The scarlet thread of the Bible. And sometimes, listen to me, the Bible 
stories give us a literal scarlet thread to remind us of this. Two times in the Old Testament, there is a literal scarlet thread mentioned. And the reason this scarlet thread is mentioned is to demonstrate that the scarlet thread running through the Bible sometimes takes unexpected turns. The first time that we see the scarlet thread mentioned, a literal scarlet thread, is in Genesis chapter 38. Jacob had a son named Judah, and Judah was tricked by his daughter-in-law Tamar. She was desperate for a child, so she tricked her father-in-law so that she could conceive by him and have a son. It's a really sad, distressing story. And Tamar is pregnant. And when it comes time for her to give birth, the midwife discovers that she is pregnant with twins. One of the babies, named Zerah, stretches his hand out, and she thinks, this is the firstborn. This is the one that had the privileges and rights of the firstborn child. So she takes a scarlet thread and ties it around his wrist to designate the firstborn. The midwife thinks, hey, this is how God's going to work through Tamar. She's going to work through his firstborn named Zerah. But then Zerah pulls his hand back in. And the other twin is delivered first. His name is Perez. And even though the midwife thought she knew God's plan, Perez is the firstborn. Now, why is there that strange, short birth narrative in the book of Genesis? Well, this story demonstrates that God had something special for this firstborn named Perez. He had different plans than the midwife and was going to work through Perez. Sometimes the scarlet thread takes unexpected turns, right? As we see God's plan of redemption unfold, it, it, it just doesn't always make sense. The next time we see a literal thread of scarlet is in Joshua chapter 2. Look there with me. Let me show you this. It says in verse 15, She let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days till the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord... In the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that, we, that you have made us swear. And she, and she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So the spies say, when we attack, all the soldiers will know, don't attack the people in that home where the scarlet thread is hanging out of the window. It's a lot like the Passover lamb, isn't it? When we see the the red, we'll pass over your home in judgment, and the people in that house will be saved. And here's this literal Scarlet thread, which I believe is put there to remind us of the scarlet thread that runs throughout all of God's Word. And just like with with Perez and Zerah, sons of Tamar, 
Sometimes God's plan of redemption takes unexpected turns. Here's this pagan prostitute. And God is working through her life and saving her and is going to do something great through her. Now, here's where it all comes together. Here's where we see how this all comes together in a beautiful picture. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you how this scarlet thread comes front and center. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's the first time we see a literal scarlet thread. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz... By who? Rahab. Rahab marries this guy named Salmon. They have a son named Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. You can read about it in the book of Ruth. It's incredible what God does. How God weaves all of that together. So here's the question. It says that Ruth, uh, by uh, Obed... Gives birth to, to the, uh, by, by Boaz, gives birth to Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, uh, father of David the king. And eventually the lineage leads all the way to Jesus Christ. Now here's a question. Why in the world would the lineage of Christ have this really distressing story of Tamar's sons, unexpected twists and turns, and Perez is the firstborn when the midwife thought Zerah was going to be? Why, why, why is Perez in the lineage? And why is there a, a pagan prostitute in the lineage of Christ? Because that is God's scarlet thread of redemption. And here's what we learn from this. The unexpected twists and turns of the genealogy of Christ remind us that the shed blood of Jesus, redemption is for everyone. Broken people, people far from God. People that, 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 that no one believed in. God intersected their life and changed their life. And they're included in the genealogy of our Savior. It's the scarlet thread of redemption. The blood of Christ saving sinners, providing redemption, sending a Savior for you and for me. Because here's the good news. That scarlet thread that was woven through Rahab's life can touch our life too. And that's the point of this sermon. The scarlet thread of redemption touched Rahab's life and it can touch your life too. Because here's the good news. All of those pictures of blood atonement, the animals killed in the Garden of Eden, the ram in the thicket, the sacrificial system, the Passover lamb, all of that culminates at the cross. Because God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven and took on human flesh. And He lived on this earth as the God-man. A spotless, perfect life. And of His own volition, Jesus Christ went to the cross. 
And on the cross, the Bible says, he became sin for us. And on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He took our punishment for us. He died for our sins. And after he died on the cross, shedding his blood for guilty sinners like me, he was buried. And it looked hopeless. But early on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He defeated death itself. He's alive today. And his shed blood can be applied to your life. His shed blood can wash away your brokenness. His shed blood can forgive you of your sins. His shed blood can change your life. His scarlet thread of redemption can touch you. That's what this sermon is all about. If Rahab can be transformed by the scarlet thread of redemption, so can you and so can I. And so, we see here Rahab, a transformed life. The shed blood of the Lord touching a sinner like her. I'm grateful today for the scarlet thread of the Bible.